Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we have a special guest, Liz. Yes. Hi, everyone from rainy Portland, Oregon. Rainy and chilly Portland, Oregon. Well, it's chilly here, too, in Maine. It was sunny, though. And Liz's episodes are always among our most popular. But before we get started, there's a topic, a topic that's on all of our minds. Probably our listeners' minds, too. The Alec Murdoch murders. Uh, so, Liz, um, you- Hello, wait a minute. What? I've just been listening, binging Laura Richards. Uh-huh. And she doesn't like it when you call it by the name of the murderer. Well, just, since there's oh. five... Since okay. Five dead people. <laughs> but but two of the people who were murdered are yeah, last names were We can call them murdered. So, so, so Liz, why don't you go oh. first? What are your biggest takeaways? Yeah. I've been following this for quite a while and mainly through Mandy Matney's um, The Murdoch Murders podcast. And she's a local reporter in South Carolina who's been following it very closely for years. So I recommend her podcast, although there are many, many episodes. So my big thing is when people, people who question the conviction the guilty conviction of Alec Murdoch. A lot of people say they don't find the motive presented by the state convincing. And I didn't watch the whole trial, so I don't know how they presented it. And I know that, you know, they really focus on the financial crimes as part of the pressures on Alec Murdoch that kind of made him think that getting rid of Maggie, his wife, and Paul, his son, would benefit him in some way. I'm not going to lay out what those were, but there actually were some benefits to him for getting rid of them. Um, That's one thing. But Mandy Matney was saying how she was worried that he wasn't really pulling it together because it wasn't just the financial crimes. It was a sort of totality of a number of pressures on him, including the fact that his father was dying and his father had always been his fixer his whole life. Every time Mm. he got into trouble... There are a number of things like that. But one of the things that when I kind of looked at the whole history of the case and thinking about some of the other cases I covered as in other cases, I'm kind of interested in the phenomenon of family annihilators. (laughs) And I know that Waters, the prosecutor, did kind of bring it up in his, what do you call it, cross-interrogation of Alec Murdoch. I don't think they presented his motive as a case of family annihilation. They brought it in. But I think people should really look at family annihilation Look at the cases and look at the kind of profile of people, because Alec Murdoch, in fact, really fits the profile of a family annihilator. And if you understand what the way family annihilators think, his feeling that he needed to kill Maggie and Paul and perhaps even do it to save them from the horror and shame that his soon to be, you know, veiled horrendous financial crimes and who knows what else. It makes a lot of sense if you kind of educate yourself about family annihilators because he really, really fits the bill. So that's just basically my big... Becky, what are your takes? Um, I I agree that focusing on that financial motive, I think it's, in a way, it's easier to make people understand that, but it's, it's also harder to show them there are people out there that have gone through a lot worse and didn't kill their family. So that's a hard thing to prove to a jury, to make a jury understand that. Family Annihilator, if they had had an expert, which I didn't watch the whole trial either. I think mom and dad watched a lot of it because it was on MSNBC and they don't know how to turn the channel. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, if they continue to have experts on that explain these things at trial, then maybe people would understand them more. But since they don't, it makes it too simplistic. But I also think that he's definitely guilty and I do think he's a family annihilator I don't think he was worried so much about the shame is that 
I think he thought he could somehow so somebody it looked like i think his stupid plan was to have that poor guy that came and shot him <laughs> yeah to be right. framed but he wasn't he didn't plan it out very well and i think that that kit that stephen smith was that his name mm-hmm. i think buster did have something to do with his death and as for his housekeeper i don't know if anyone actually meant to kill her but i do think maybe maggie shoved her or something because she seems like she was kind of i shouldn't i shouldn't speak ill of her i don't know Mm. enough about her but regardless of how she died or if she was killed he took huge advantage of the fact and also as everybody knows ripped off her sons who really could use the money so he's just a horrible person the whole family's horrible. And I was thinking when I was one of the documentaries, or one of the series I was watching, if this were a movie or like, it reminds me almost of like one of those shows like Succession or something, you'd be like, come on, right. this family is getting away with all this shit and there's no way, but right. you know, they yeah. didn't because they were rich. And that's one of my points. First of all, on the prosecution I, too, watch MSNBC during the day while I'm working a lot, and they didn't have the entire trial, but, like, when Murdoch was testifying, they had him. I think in a trial that long and complicated, they pick and choose how much information they're going to throw at the jury. And if they had considered having an expert, maybe they just said, you know, we've got all this other stuff. Yeah. It's funny, I think I texted you at one point, Becky, the defense attorney was something like, like, who would kill their their wife and child blah 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 and i'm like obviously this guy has never watched dateline or anything because people do it all the fucking time and my take my general take is i've watched two documentary series i think the netflix one was much better than the i agree I think yeah. it was Discovery Plus. The Discovery Plus one, I think it was called like Deadly Dynasty or something. That like didn't really go into the fact, like people are like, oh, the Murdochs were the law for the past century. But I don't think it goes into the fact that they were not just the law, but got their way. And I it was happy to hear the judge who was black. You notice, even though South Carolina is like a 50% black state, the only black people in either of those documentaries were the cops and the servants and the judge, but pointed out that Murdoch's law firm and family had probably sent to the, you know, to the chair, to the electric chair for less, you know, way more people to the electric chair for less. But I think they were very used to privilege. I think Alex Murdoch is a sociopath or a psychopath or whatever. I think if somebody didn't deliberately kill Gloria Satterfield, the housekeeper, the minute she was killed, he saw payday. Yeah. Because that's how he was making his money. And it was long, you know, the drugs, just like Hollywood celebrities, were an excuse. He was doing, he was ripping people off long before the drugs. He could not have been a functioning, he could not have done his job and been a drug addict for a long time without people at work noticing. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say is in one of the documentaries, they mentioned, oh, how could they go through $4 million? You know, where's that $4 million? <laughs> It's like, first of all, that's not that much money nowadays, but someone that lives that kind of lifestyle, yeah. they can blow through that kind of money. Right. I could blow through and that kind of money. And he's not just spending it on quick. drugs. But my other thing was, as far as motive, it's the money the privilege, the psychopathy. He was desperate and he saw his wife and son, just like everybody else, as a payday and a way to forestall things or maybe make the charges go away. You know, people act like uh, these people are thinking a logical way 
when yeah, they're right. not. I mean, aside from the drugs, but my take on the overall thing is he's definitely guilty of the wife and kid. Yeah. Somebody may or may not have deliberately killed Gloria Satterfield. And it, it could have been Paul who killed her, even though the his friends and stuff talked about how much he loved her. He could have killed her for whatever reason. But Alec, the second her head hit the ground, he was seeing a payday. I think Stephen Smith, Buster, and somebody else were bullying him. And it probably got out of hand. Yeah. And with mm -hmm. the boat crash, I think that Paul... I don't think he necessarily thought anyone was going to die, but he was pissed off because they were hassling him and he was being an asshole and a jerk. And I don't know if he deliberately ran it into the bridge, but he was deliberately driving in a very, very dangerous way just to be an asshole because he was pissed off. It reminded me of once I was in a car with somebody who, when I was, I was in high school, he got on the highway and right. he was going north towards Waterville. He got up to over a hundred miles an hour. Ugh. It was my friend and her boyfriend. They were five of us and him and he was driving really fast and his friend was like oh, faster faster and his girl the girlfriend was like would you please slow down please slow down and he would not slow down right. it was like we're gonna die we didn't obviously right. he eventually slowed down but when but, you're look, in a boat doing that it, people like that the more people are like stop you're you know you're gonna hurt us Especially somebody else the, the more yeah. they're gonna and i also think that whole timmy persona is not it's not like he had two personalities and right. it's not like Alec Murdoch had two personalities they right. had one personality and they managed to not be an asshole 100% of the time basically but i'll just say too my final thing comparing the two docs the reason the netflix one is better is because it has the kids and their families who were in the boat crash yes talking yeah. Instead of the thing I hate with these Discovery Plus type docs, three different reporters all telling the same story. And I did start listening to that Mandy Matley podcast way back when it started, but then things were happening so fast and everything. Yeah. I'm like, I have to wait till this all resolves because yeah. I can't keep up. Oh, and the one other point I wanted to make, I don't buy when he shot himself in the head more or less, shot himself in the hair, actually. <laughs> but that was a... Uh, a suicide no. attempt or that his friend yeah, was, I, I think no. he was trying to set up his friend yes. then would set him up so that he had murdered yes. Paul. Make it look like he was a target following yes. through with the targeting of his. Yes. But just like Jeff McDonald and all the others, when the two other people are blown away, blown to smithereens and he has a tiny little scalp wound that isn't even visible a week later it doesn't really sell the right. narrative very well. I just wanted to say that I thought it was interesting that the nurses and the hospital staff, even though they weren't supposed to say anything, were telling all the kids to stay away from mm -hmm. that kid. It's just interesting to me that people who are removed, that are involved but not part of the situation, but are observing it, can pick that stuff up right away. Right. And just say that kid's an asshole. You should stay away from him. <laughs> yes. The whole thing of trying to make the prosecution really case for the motive to rest on a kind of family annihilator. You know, I don't even know if they seriously considered it. It might be too difficult, open up too many difficulties. You know, you'd have to bring in a whole kind of psychological profile, psychological experts. And it probably was just something they probably didn't want to open more more can of worms than anything else and that just really focusing on the kind of pressure of the financial crimes right. but i will say that once paul died the civil case the boat case i don't know if it eliminated it but it certainly was postponed and so you know thinking in the very short term that 
psychopaths often do, killing Paul actually achieved something that Alec desperately wanted to do, right. which was delay the un through discovery and that civil suit, the unveiling of his the enormity yes. of his financial of crimes, his crimes. Which of course did come out eventually, yes. but it was months later. People don't understand too that psychopaths do not have good long term thinking. Right. I mean, I don't know for sure he's a psychopath, yeah, but he you is. Know. He is, and also, and on that note too, one other point I wanted to make is the defense tried to make the argument at the trial that he was treated differently because he was rich. And I'm like, yeah, he was treated differently because he was rich. The cops were obsequious. The cops right. let all those people sit around the crime scene and all that right. shit. If he had been some black guy in South Carolina, he would have been dead 15 minutes after Paul and Maggie I mean, were. a poor white guy. Or, right. Or even a poor, <laughs> yeah, white, a poor guy. white guy. It's more than just he was a rich white guy. He was a Murdoch. And in yeah. that county. And that part in of that, the, In that area. State, they, yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about the family annihilator thing that Liz, you might be being a little too charitable. This is going to piss some people off, but part of it is I don't think a lot of men understand that kind of thinking and they were the ones running the prosecution and they were just like, oh, there was a woman though, wasn't there? But they're just like, this is why I did it, blah, 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 right. when it's too nuanced. Yeah. Like you were saying, it's hard to explain, but also I don't think it occurs to- They obviously knew to some law enforcement people. Waters brought it up at one point, yeah. but it wasn't what they were presenting. They could have had more. But Liz, too, you said you had an update- very brief one. And I, I've been looking to see if I can get a, an update of the update. But, you know, the man convicted of Michael Frankie's murder, Frank Gable, whose conviction was vacated, was it last year? It was shortly before I gave whatever whatever episode I, I talked about. I want to say episode 81, but I'm not. Yeah, I should go get my calendar there. and see. But He was released from prison. The conviction was vacated. This past October, the Oregon Department of Justice said they were considering basically appealing that circuit court decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. The latest thing I can find is from October where they were saying they were considering it, challenging vacating of the guilty conviction. But a lot of editorials came out saying, don't do it, this guy. They you just know, can't. There is they evidence just... that this guy did it. And I don't know if they followed through or, or not. So, but anyways, they were considering it as of October and I can't find updates to see if they actually did it. I they think can't... they had like some of the 30 days or something they can just it, never but... let go when they convict the wrong person they just can't admit it and let it go i have two updates before you start yeah. your story the first one is for episode 77 which was in june of 2020 Whoa. and that was the brianna taylor but it was also wire cops killing all these black women the second one was episode 95 which was Jeanetta carr the teenage girl who was falsely convicted of murder in Louisville. So in June 2020, we covered the death of Brianna Taylor, who was shot by Louisville, Kentucky police in March of that year. And in February 2021, we covered the false conviction of Janetta Carr, who was 16, when the Louisville, Kentucky police hung a murder on her that they knew she didn't do. This week, the U.S. Department of Justice finished a two-year investigation of the Louisville police department that was spurred by Brianna Taylor's murder after a year of protest pressures and lawsuits. And the investigation, and this is from a, a March 8 Department of Justice news release that I'll put a link to on our website when I get to it. They found, and I know you guys are going to be shocked, shocked mm -hmm. 
that they discovered these things about the Louisville PD, that it uses excessive force, including unjustified neck restraints and the unreasonable use of police dogs and tasers, mm. conduct searches based on invalid warrants, unlawfully execute search warrants without knocking and announcing, unlawfully stop searches, detains, and arrests people during street enforcement activities, including traffic and pedestrian stops, unlawfully discriminates against black people in its enforcement activities, huh. violates the rights of people engaged in, in protected free speech critical of policing, and discriminates against people with behavioral health disabilities when responding to them in crisis. The DOJ also identified deficiencies in the Louisville Police Department's response to an investigation of domestic violence and sexual assault, including its responses to allegations that police officers engaged in sexual misconduct or domestic violence. Deficiencies in policies, training, supervision, and accountability contribute to Louisville Metro Police Department and Louisville Metro the city's unlawful conduct. U.S. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland said, the Justice Department has concluded that there is reasonable cause to believe that Louisville Metro and LMPD engage in a pattern of or practice of conduct that violates the constitutional rights of the residents of Louisville. This unacceptable and unconstitutional conduct erodes the community trust <clears throat> necessary for effective policing. It is also an affront to the vast majority of officers who put their lives on the line to serve Louisville with honor, and it is an affront to the people of Louisville who deserve better. They have entered into a consent decree which I talk about in episode 77. Basically, the Department of Justice puts a police department on probation for a number of years, and they have to meet certain standards before they're allowed to be out of it. They were very common until the Orange Fakers presidential administration, and he eliminated them. His attorney general, Barr, eliminated them, oh. but um, Biden administration brought them back. There are eight police departments under consent decree right now, including Minneapolis, Phoenix, mm. Mount Vernon, New York, Louisiana State Police, the New York City Police Department Special Victims Division, the Worcester, Massachusetts Police Department, and Oklahoma City. Hmm. The one in Louisville, according to the newspaper, there is expected to cost the city 8 to $10 million a year in reform-related costs. And I say good luck to them. I hope it works. We hear a lot of whining by police about how misunderstood they are and how hard it is now to be a cop, but very little acknowledgement until they're forced that they need to change the way they do things. And then they resent it. And they act like dicks. So we'll see what happens. Of course, the Department of Justice press release, like all stuff like this, has to give the gratuitous, you know, most cops are good, blah, blah, blah. And again, as I have in the past, I'll paraphrase Edmund Burke and say all it takes for bad cops to keep doing their shit is for good cops to stand back and do nothing. Like, where were the good cops in the Memphis Police Department when Tyree Nichols was beaten to death? Because there were a lot of cops on that scene and nobody stopped those guys from doing it. So don't give me that, you know, most cops are good bullshit. In episode 95, the Janetta Carr one, which I encourage people to listen to because that's actually something I dug up myself. So we're unique in having done that. And she actually contacted me to thank me on social media mm. afterwards. She's a nice young woman. But we went into the Louisville Police Department's long history of corruption, racism, and even touch on the domestic violence among cops issues and stuff. It's nothing new. In that episode, we talked about it going back 30 years or more, and it was 
on the record. It was, you know, it was known. So you have to wonder when everyone knows this is going on and it doesn't change, what does it take? And that leads us right into my next update, episode 97, Sarah Everard, Mm. which was in March of 2021. And just briefly, for those of you who may not know, she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered by a cop, Wayne Cousins, who pleaded guilty last year, and we had many updates. Um, But you may remember in that episode, we discussed how shortly before Sarah was murdered, Cousins was reported as having exposed himself in a McDonald's twice in the days before she was killed. At the time, the details weren't clear, particularly whether the cops knew it was him and that kind of stuff, and what they had done, if anything, about their reports. And obviously, if they had done anything, he wouldn't have been in a position to cruise around and kidnap, rape, and murder women using his police persona. But this week, we got those answers. And this is information I got from a couple Guardian um, stories. I didn't have time to do a lot of research. But Cousins was sentenced to 19 months in prison on March 6th for flashing at women in the months before he kidnapped, raped, and murdered Sarah Everard. And that's on top of the life sentence he's serving for kidnapping, raping, and murdering Sarah Everard. Cousins, at the time, he was a special policeman. I can't remember the force, and I didn't write it down. The McDonald's things, though, are only part of it. In November 2020, he was working from home in the town of Deal, Kent. You know, it was during the COVID and everything. He was supposed to be working from home, but instead he was on an isolated rural country lane where he stepped out of the woods completely naked in front of a female bicyclist as she approached and started masturbating his erect penis. The prosecutor, Tom Little, said of the cyclist, she felt she had no choice but to continue cycling along that country lane. There were no words exchanged between them. She had a clear view of him and clearly remembered what he looked like. About 50 meters farther on, she cycled past a parked black car, It was a seat car. I've never heard of those, but that's a car manufacturer, I guess, in England. Seat, S-E-A-T. She said it looked old and a little battered, and she couldn't later recall um, the license plate number. Right after that, she came upon two women and told them what she had seen. One of the women said she was a police officer and she'd keep an eye out for the guy. When the cyclist reached a crossroads, she called her husband. He came and got her, and she later reported the incident to Kent Police, providing a description of the guy, a description of the car. The Guardian says, at the time, Cousins had a car that matched that description, including being in poor condition. But in the absence of a number plate match, the investigation stalled. And I say, I'm sure the police didn't try very hard. And that's not why the investigation stalled. I'm sure they just fucking didn't do anything, as in my experience. They never do in the case of flashers. And I think we all have stories that we won't go into now because of being flashed and telling somebody in a position of authority or whatever and them not giving a shit. By the way, where the cyclist saw Cousins was a short distance from where he dumped Sarah Everard's body months later. After he was arrested in the Everard case, the cyclist recognized him on TV and called police. The prosecutor said she felt instant shock at seeing the picture and said she was 90% sure it was him who masturbated in front of her, unquote. The police found he was supposed to be, the day that that happened to her, he was supposed to be working from home from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., 
but the prosecutor said it follows that he was on duty at the time of the offense, but was not at home. It's like, no shit. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, traffic cameras and cell site data located Cousins in his car in that country area at the time of the offense. And you kind of wonder when the woman reported it, obviously cell site data wouldn't have been, you know, something they could have done, but they could have looked at the traffic cameras what are those cameras? They're all over that country. What are they there for? I don't really think they investigated it. I think they blew her off. They don't care. They don't think that's much of a crime. So. Right. Then in February 2021, Cousins was at a drive through at a Kent McDonald's and, quote, sat in his car and looked straight at them, the people working at McDonald's, as he showed his erect penis while handing over his card to pay for food. The female staff were, quote, shaken, upset, and angry, unquote. That was February 14, 2021, a couple weeks before Sarah Everard was murdered, Valentine's Day. He did it again on February 27th, and they got his license plate number and a description of his car, which was registered to him. Oh, and by the way, every time he did this, he used a credit card with his own name on it to pay. <laughs> the McDonald's staff reported it to the Metropolitan Police, complete with the full car registration, details from the credit card, a description of him, a description of the car, and everything else. And the Guardian and many others, I'm sure, pointed out that police can check car registration details from a desk via a computer linked to the driving and vehicle licensing agency, but they apparently didn't do it, even though those are considered basic police work when a report like that is made. Oh, and he also did it twice in late January at the same McDonald's, and they reported it. The Met said that they got the report of the last one on February 28th, three days before Everard was kidnapped, draped, and killed. And it was recorded and passed on to a local officer to investigate. And by the time of Sarah Everard's kidnap on March 3rd, 2021, the investigation was not concluded and Cousins' occupation had not been identified. And to me, here's the investigation. You put the registration number into the computer. His name and address come up. You go to his house. That, to me, is how you investigate that. Apparently, the same day Sarah Everard was kidnapped, but before she was kidnapped, the cop went to the McDonald's to talk to the people there. And that was the first he had done any investigating. The first thing I would do is put the information in the computer, car license information, and find out who the guy yeah. was. Especially since he had done it four times in a few weeks. It there. boggles the mind. Boggles no. the mind. And he used his fucking credit card. Uh, no shit. But wait, there's more. In June 2015... A couple was out with their two-year-old on a country lane, I think in Dover, when a man drove by with his erect penis in full view. So he must have been like elevate, you know, uh, I think we're, uh, some of us are familiar with yes. that move. Yes. The couple gave Kent police a full car description, including his license number, a description of what the car looked like, a description of what the guy looked like and everything. But Kent police did not do anything about it. Cousins, who appeared in the Old Bailey via video link from Franklin Prison on March 6th at the March 6th hearings, pleaded guilty to three of the charges of indecent exposure, the November 2021 with the cyclists and the two last McDonald's ones. The three others he pleaded not guilty to, but they're on file with the court. The women in the exposure cases were not pleased with a police response at the time, which they made clear at the hearing, which they spoke at Monday. Cyclist said her freedom to enjoy country walks and cycling has been taken away by his selfish, aggressive act. Quote, I remember vividly being concerned that somebody who could expose themselves to a stranger in such an intimidating way could go on to commit much more serious acts. And this is what happened, she said. 
She told mm-hmm. Cousins, four months after you exposed yourself to me, you raped and murdered an innocent woman. And she had to, the next thing I'm going to say, she had to say to Cousins, I think in their court, you have to address the person. You can't say general things. You have to address your remarks to the person. So she told Cousins, there were opportunities to identify you and they were not taken. I did not feel that when I reported your crime, it was taken as seriously as I felt that it should have been. The horror of what happened will remain with me for the rest of my life. And those are my updates. No real surprises there. Well, people think those kind of crimes are funny. Trivial. And they're not. And if they were addressed more aggressively, prosecuted, and treated like sexual assaults, which is what they are. Which is what they are. There would be a lot less even more serious he, because they are definitely every single more serious sex offender starts out doing this kind right. of stuff and he's a police yes, officer so yeah. if he had been caught the first time he would have no longer been a police officer and would not have been in a position because the theory with sarah everard is that he used his position as a police officer in his warrant card you know it was during covid and he gave her the indication because she was walking home that she was violating her curfew or something and that's how he was able to interact with her first of all there were obviously other offenses it's not like he did it once on june 2015 and didn't do it again until november 2020 And then did it four times at the McDonald's. It's just that people don't report them or there's possibly reported ones that people haven't come forward or the police, you know, no longer have the reports since they did jack shit about it. And I'm sure he felt he could get away with it because he did. did. And I'm not fully convinced that there weren't police who didn't know he was a cop said, well, he's a cop. So let's just let it go. He's just blowing off some steam. It's a stressful job, blah, blah, blah. So those are my updates. And now, Liz, you have your story for us. Yes. So, and I couldn't quite think up a a snazzy title for my case, or I should say it's a couple of cases and a kind of larger issue. I just let Momo figure that out. I obviously can't think of snazzy titles either. I'm stealing a title of one of my major sources, which is called The Killing Bones, an article that appeared in Outside Magazine by Bruce Barcott in 2004. I'm going to use that term and credit Bruce Barcott and his article in Outside Magazine. Today, I want to talk about the ancient practice of looting of burial sites and other kinds of archaeological sites, its costs, and a couple of specific crimes in Oregon that are connected to this nefarious activity. I decided to focus on this topic. I am a member of the Oregon Archaeological Society, and a recent talk uh, was of an archaeologist who had excavated a major site in eastern Oregon that had been heavily looted. And there was a lot of destruction because of the looting of the site. And he talked a lot about, you know, how as an archaeologist, they tried to rectify or, you know, kind of deal with the destruction of the site that the thieves had perpetrated. In the course of his talk, he mentioned this article. This was a case in Oregon in the early 2000s, and I kind of had a vague memory of it. And I think I had recently joined the Archaeological Society when this main case happened. But there's another case, too, that came up in my research that I want to talk about. So my sources today are that article, The Killing Bones, um, in Outside Magazine, a documentary film that deals with one of my cases briefly. It's kind of a secondary issue in the film. The, the documentary is called Old Growth Murder. Some articles from the Oregonian, articles from the Statesman Journal in Salem, Oregon, AP News, a number of items in Archaeology Magazine, the Smithsonian, a couple of legal documents, which I'll identify in my 
presentation, the Oregon Archaeological Society website, the Washington Post, and News Nation, and a, a couple of other things. Mm. So when I first moved to Oregon, September of 2001, I began teaching ancient world history as one of my major courses that I teach. And although I'd taken courses in those things and you know, had some exposure to archaeology. I'd never taught it before. And I decided to join the Oregon Archaeological Society to kind of get more exposure to archaeology, but also because I thought it would be a really cool group to belong to. And I always enjoyed archaeology. And when I went to become a member, uh, I had to make a pledge, an ethics pledge. And so I'm going to read that. This, this is from the Oregon Archaeological Society bylaws, which is an organization that has to or has chosen over the years to adhere to legal and ethical treatment of archaeological sites and artifacts. And one of their main objectives in their bylaws is to, in the words of the bylaw, discourage surface collecting or excavating for prehistoric and historic artifacts from public and private lands, except when done under the supervision of an archaeologist with the State Historic Preservation Office permit. And the code of ethics that if you join the OAS, you have to sign on to are one that members shall abide by all local, state, and federal laws governing archaeological excavation, the collection, acquisition, or sale of artifacts. Members will be mindful of the need to preserve valuable archaeological information. Two, members shall report to appropriate authorities any threats or acts of destruction to possible prehistoric and historic archaeological sites, as well as unauthorized disposal or export or import of prehistoric and historic artifacts. And three, failure to abide by this code of ethics shall result in expulsion from the society in accordance with Article 3, Section 17. And this code of ethics really reflects a big change in an organization like the Oregon Archaeological Society. Uh, these um, archaeological societies really began, and they still really are predominantly, groups of amateur archaeologists that they really started to proliferate after World War II when archaeology as a field was becoming more and more professionalized and more and more dominated by archaeologists with higher education, usually who are working for universities or the National Forest Service and various other agencies like that. And amateur archaeologists felt a little bit roped out of uh, some of the archaeological activity, and they began to form these organizations and to kind of like, I think, institutionalize their activity and give their activities more credibility. The OIS began in 1951, and the founding members were primarily enthusiastic, what are called pot hunters. They kind of used to call themselves mm -hmm. that affectionately. Archaeologists use this term as a pejorative um, to kind of indicate these amateurs. And, you know, they pick up and collect arrowheads and other artifacts on private land and also public land pretty much with impunity. But especially starting in the late 70s and 80s, there was a big shift in societal attitudes, attitudes of government agencies, also professional archaeology, also, as we'll see, tribal group, indigenous peoples and other people who are affected by people just kind of scavenging these things, starting to really get upset about it. And so there was a really sort of sea change in people's attitudes towards that kind of activity, just kind of going around and picking up cool things that you find in the ground or even digging them up. And this actually caused a big rift in the OAS with some of that original generation feeling that they were being unfairly labeled as looters and grave robbers. And there was actually an exodus of some of these early members out of the organization in the 80s and 90s. I wasn't there when they officially adopted the Code of Ethics. I think it was sometime in the 90s. Uh, it was certainly established when I joined 
probably in 2002 or so. So there were continued to be older members from around that time. We talked about how it was really a really difficult time for the organization. You know, that some of the founding members left because they just thought they shouldn't have to sign on to that kind of ethical pledge. They didn't see it as an ethical issue. Um, So some of those older members, the few that remain are really elderly now, 20 years ago, more of them were around. And the truth of the matter is that looting of archaeological sites, including graves and tombs, has been big business since ancient times. All of the Great Pyramids of Egypt, as well as most of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, were robbed in the ancient period, often within just a short time after a pharaoh's burial. One of the reasons that Carter's discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb was such a phenomenon that happened in the 1920s, archaeologists had never yet discovered a pharaoh's tomb that had not been robbed. And so although Tut was a relatively minor pharaoh and the hoard that he had in his tomb probably was pretty piddly compared to like a really, really important pharaoh like Ramses II, it was an intact tomb. And the hoard was pretty spectacular. And when you think about he was a minor guy, the hoard of some of those, you know, the burial hoard of some of those really pharaohs, what they must have been. So Carter's excavation itself was, by our modern standards, grave robbing. He didn't have any kind of permission from the government of Egypt, uh, which was more or less a kind of protectorate of the British at that point. And he was, I believe, a Harvard University professor. I forgot to kind of check that before this presentation. I'm sorry. I was focused on my other things. And those things were brought back to Boston, and many of them ended up in the Old Kingdom collection in the Boston Museum of Fine Art. Hannah, when we went to the museum, that that's Hannah's favorite part, and she couldn't believe how much stuff was there. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, mm. a lot of it was stuff was that was stolen. All these archaeologists, you know, from Harvard and MIT and those schools. Um, and this summer, Maureen and I were able to enjoy the spectacular Parthenon sculptures. They used to be called the Elgin Marbles. Uh, Elgin or Elgin, that's another thing I should have <laughs> long housed in the British Museum. The objects were removed from the Parthenon at Athens and from other ancient buildings and shipped to England by arrangement of Thomas Bruce, the seventh Lord Elgin, who was the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire from 1799 to 1803. And Greece was within the Ottoman Empire at that time, was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. So Greece never gave permission. He got permission from the Ottoman Empire, their their colonizer, right? His actions were controversial, though. Even at that time, there was a kind of growing movement for Greek nationalism. People in England who were sympathetic to the Greeks like Lord Byron, who ended up dying actually while fighting for Greek independence. He died of yellow fever or something like that, not battle wounds. (laughs) I don't know if he even got into battle, but he went to Greece to kind of help Greece win its independence from the Turks. And he just excoriated Elgin. And and in fact, a select parliamentary committee looked into the whole matter. And Elgin's justification was that the artifacts would be safer in England. The British government eventually bought them from Elgin for about half of what he spent to bring them to England. And they've been housed as a main attraction in the British Museum ever since. Uh, Since Greece gained its independence in 1832, it's tried to get them back. Uh, And recently, there's been some movement on this issue. And just to quote from Bloomsburg News, an agreement is in the process of being brokered between Greece and England that would see a proportion of the marbles sent to Athens on rotation over several years According to people familiar with the matter, the deal hasn't been sealed yet, though, but it looks like it's going to be finalized. In exchange, other objects would effectively be loaned to the museum in London. And Britain would also get plaster copies of the Parthenon sculptures. So the agreement isn't final yet, but it looks like it's in process. It's becoming more and more difficult for you know, a legitimate museum like the British Museum to claim that they have the right to these things. Right. You know? um, not knowing as much about this stuff as you do. And, you know, I'd heard of 
the Parthenon exhibit, hadn't thought much about it, had very little knowledge of this controversy. They do have a tiny little plaque thing in the museum that explains it, but I will say- This is a huge exhibit, right, Mo? I mean, this is a massive- that's what I want to say, that I can't- explain it's kind of like when i saw the grand canyon only different it's like photographs or somebody explaining it to you does doesn't do it justice to stand there and look and the way they have it set up i could have spent our entire few hours at the british museum just looking at that it's just really breathtaking and you can understand why they want to keep it We got there when the museum opened because nothing opens in the UK until 10 o'clock for some reason, but it was very crowded, very fast. But on the other hand, it's not theirs and they have to give it back. And by the way, in 2019, when I last was in Greece, I visited the Acropolis Museum, which was as a new state of art museum that was built in 2009. And it's absolutely spectacular. It's at the foot of the Acropolis and they have a whole area for those sculptures that now have plaster copies and and they and just much make the point yeah <laughs> like we're waiting for them and we've got this beautiful you know absolutely cutting edge right. music and it's they'll be very very well taken care there, of there's just something to be said for seeing the actual thing that people thousands of years ago were looking at the same actual thing and the detail on like the little tiles that show the battle and the marching yeah, and the yeah. it's mind-blowing Oh, no, I was going to say just like the collection that the Boston Museum of Fine Arts has is huge. It's huge. It must be one of the biggest ones around. When you go into it, you're pretty impressed. I mean, I was pretty impressed, but then you, like I said, you start thinking about how it was obtained. So given that, I want to just explain briefly why looting is bad. You still have people who basically justify it. You have people who say, Uh, For instance, you know, well, someone digs up an artifact and they saw on eBay, they haven't destroyed the artifact or anything, right? So it's no problem. But the thing that is an issue with it is that even if you're careful in how you dig up the artifact or how you treat the artifact, when you take an artifact or bodily remains or whatever from their original site, you are destroying context and provenience which are keys to understanding the past, understanding the meaning of these artifacts and these sites. So improper digging and looting destroys archaeological sites and deprives the looted artifacts of the context that conveys knowledge of the past. Then there is also the issue of indigenous peoples or other peoples who are connected to those artifacts and their right to have their heritage preserved or treated respectfully. For instance, Native Americans believe that the archaeological excavation, whether legal or not, of the human remains of their ancestors is blasphemous. You know, means that the spirits of those people cannot rest properly, and it's it's a huge violation of their cultural norms. So, uh, since the early 20th century, there has been some recognition that archaeological and historical artifacts need protection. In 1906, the Antiquities Act made it illegal to remove artifacts from public land without a permit, but penalties were weak: a maximum of only a $500 fine and 90 days in jail. By the 1970s, looters could sell a single ceramic pot for like $10,000 and amass hundreds of thousands of dollars from a single looted site. And I'm talking about American sites, you know, Native American sites, mainly in the Southwest. But really, this is an issue everywhere throughout the United States. Enforcement was rare with just 18 convictions 
between 1906 and 1979, and just a total of a few thousand in fines. This was a federal law that was not really being enforced in any appreciable way. Value, both sites were being looted with impunity, or still are basically, but now there is a little bit more meat. By the late 1970s, Colorado claimed that two-thirds of its tens of thousands of sites have been looted. Arizona estimated at least half of their sites have been looted. In response to the problem, Congress passed the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, or ARPA, in 1979, which increased penalties significantly. An ARPA conviction can carry two years in prison and a $20 fine for a first offense, and it goes up from there. But, you know, the problem is the money being made often is worth the risk, especially when enforcement is difficult. By the mid-1980s, the worldwide trade in illegally procured antiquities was valued at more than $1 billion second only to the global illegal drug trade. Now it's over $10 billion. In 1990, Congress passed the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA. The law makes it illegal to dig, desecrate, or take any Native American remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony from federal and tribal lands. It also dictates repatriation to tribes as well as the treatment of objects and human remains. And it targets collectors and traffickers. And it has a mechanism to pressure museums and other institutions that receive federal funds to kind of pressure them to repatriate burial remains to tribal authorities. This law was passed mainly through pressure from Native American tribes who spent years trying to pressure, put pressure on Congress to pass it. It still puts a big burden on them, though, to document the artifacts and to kind of prove that they were illegally obtained and that they really belong to them. So there are issues enforcing it. Um, and then you, you look at Oregon law, state, state laws impact these two. And Oregon has a pretty stringent comparatively law that, that prohibits the sale, purchase, trade, and barter uh, or exchange of any illegally removed state, public, and private land. In Oregon law, you can't take artifacts from private land without the written permission of the owner of that land. And if it is some sort of burial artifact or human remains from a burial, it is illegal to touch it. And you have, even if it's on private land, you have to call a state archaeologist. There's a state archaeologist and a state forestry office that that has an archaeologist. And in, on public or private land, you have to get a state permit as well as the written permission of the owner. And civil, there are civil penalties as well that can be assessed both federally and state. So there's been this you know, whole set of laws that have, have kind of beefed up the legal enforcement, but there's still really big problems. And I'll get into those at the very end. And I just want to mention, um, although it doesn't involve, I don't believe there was anything illegally done in the finding of this really important find, but I'll just really briefly mention these, all these laws kind of provided the context of what happened with Kenny Wickman. Um, he was a prehistoric Paleo-American found on the bank of the Columbia River in 1996 by, I think it was just a man walking his dog near the riverbank. This was in June, and it was probably after our heavy spring rains, the Columbia turned up the riverbank. I think he was, it was a burial. He was partially submerged in the river. Was he near D.B. Cooper's money? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. But I don't think any of D.B. Cooper's money was found. It's one of the most complete ancient skeletons ever found. Radiocarbon oh. puts it about 9,000 years. And it wasn't until 2013 that ancient DNA analysis techniques shed light on where he was really from. But it's, this is a very old- Where is he now? Well, I'll tell you in a oh, moment. Okay. Immediately, there was a big controversy <laughs> among scientists and Native American tribes that's lasted for more than 10 years. The Umatilla people and other tribes demanded that the remains be returned to them. 
furry burial under NAGPRA, you know, that Native American Graves and Protection Act. One of the things the law says was that tribes can refuse to have scientific study on the remains on the grounds that it's desecration of of the remains. And the archaeologists who studied the bones asserted these were not, this was not an ancestors of modern day Native Americans, resembled more Polynesian or Southeast Asian peoples. And this was something they really had to study. And there was a nine-year court case between the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which kind of basically has jurisdiction over that riverbank, scientists and Native American tribes. It was a big, big deal. And finally, in 2015, uh, it was revealed that scientists at the University of Copenhagen had determined through DNA analysis that Kenwick Man was, in fact, Act, strongly related to modern Native Americans and very closely related to the Colville tribe, which is the tribe in Northeast Washington that basically is right in that region. Uh-huh. And so Congress passed legislation to return the ancient bones to a coalition of Columbia Basin tribes for reburial, according to their traditions. The remains were buried on February 18, 2017, with 200 members of the five Columbia Basin tribes in attendance at an undisclosed location in the area. You know, so that was just an interesting case because it shows the implications of the law, but still how the tribes had to really kind of fight to get the, the remains of this person. And one of the things is that destruction and illegal looting of sites continues. Many years ago, I was in an OAS meeting and, and someone gave a talk on site stewardship, which where volunteers, whether they be professional archaeologists or just interested people, a lot of members of the OAS volunteer for this, where you volunteer to be the steward of a archaeological site. Usually it's national forest land or BLM land to kind of protect it. So, you know, you hike in there every how, what, however often you can, whether it's once a month or every week or you know, every two months, whatever. And the idea is that you kind of keep an eye at it and see if it's been tampered with and if there's unwarranted digging or something. But it's becoming increasingly dangerous. And uh, the meth trade apparently is one of the things that's really ramping this up. People trying to find money for meth or something. The guy warned, talked about a number of instances with people, uh, archaeologists, as well as just volunteers being threatened by people in the woods. People who clearly were up to no good and were probably looking for artifacts. So that is one of the first thing that I realized that artifact collecting, in air quotes, and protection of sites and artifacts could really be a deadly game. So here I'm going to get into a couple of interesting cases related to this. Donald Peer was a sawmill worker in Toledo, Oregon. Peer professed a fascination with Native American culture and spent much of his spare time in pot hunting, as archaeologists kind of derisively call it, and collecting artifacts. His daughter fondly recalls memories of weekend outings scouting for artifacts. On January 21st, 1981, three men entered his home, pistol-whipped him and his 19-year-old son, shot his son, and stabbed Peer to death. Investigators found a number of, and there were in the newspaper article words, Indian artifacts in Peer's home. Two men, Daryl, called Darry Butler, age 43, and Gary Butler, age 28, were charged with the murder, felony murder, and attempted murder. The two men were cousins who were members of the Confederated Tribes of the Salettes, the third man was Robert Van Pell, also a cousin. I've saw in some sources that he was a, a member of the Umatilla tribe, but I'm not don't know for sure. He was charged with murder and burglary. The men, especially Daryl, were activists in AIM, the American Indian Movement. AIM was a militant organization devoted to advocating for Native American rights. If you've heard of the occupation of Alcatraz from November 1969 to June of 1971, that was an action led by AIM. Daryl was actually one of the early founders of the organization and was involved in the 1975 shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, where two FBI agents 
And a Native American was killed. Not sure if he was a member of AIM or not. Uh, Daryl faced murder charges in relation to that incident, but ultimately was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Another AIM activist in that incident, Leonard Peltier, has been serving a life sentence for killing uh, the FBI agents. His case is an ongoing controversy. Many believe that there is a strong case that Peltier was unjustly convicted and think he should be ex- he would be exonerated if granted a retrial, and he's not been granted a retrial, and it's been this ongoing controversy for decades now. Also, just prior to the Pierre killing, the Butler cousins had finished serving four years in Canada on firearms charges. While in prison, they went on hunger strikes that led to the passage of a law in Canada that mandated respecting the religious rights of Native American prisoners. The Butlers thereafter formed a group called the Society of People Struggling to Be Free. This murder case was very contentious and roused enough local feeling that the venue was changed from Lincoln County on the coast to Multnomah County, where Portland is. I should have said that Toledo in Oregon is on the coast, the central to southern coast of Oregon. The prosecution in the Butler's trial contended that the men killed Pierre, Pierre, I should say, because they believed that he had robbed historic Celeste's graves and had desecrated the remains. Apparently, they began to hear from fellow tribe members that artifacts that had been buried in graves of dead relatives had been appearing for sale at local antique shops. Not necessarily relatives. This is, again, kind of a quote from some of the news articles, but ancestors, ancestral remains. For many years, one of the names circulated as a grave robber of valuable objects from Slits Burial Grounds was Donald Peer. A 1980 state police investigation had implicated Peer, among others, with robbing of Slits Graves, but no legal action was taken, and the prosecution argued that the Butler cousins deeply resented that and wanted to make Peer pay for what they saw as this desecration of Celeste's people's graves and remains. Murder and burglary charges against Robert Van Pelt were dismissed uh, shortly before the trial began in 1985 after the circuit judge Donald Launder restricted the testimony of two witnesses. And I think it must have been that those two witnesses were who implicated Van Pelt and therefore once they were their testimony was restricted, they figured they couldn't convict him. It was because they used hypnotism. Oh, okay. Thank you for, yeah, I had forgotten that detail. Thank you, Mo. The state's key witness was Clayton Lane, basically someone who acted as a fence, you know, who often traded Indian artifacts and sold looted Indian artifacts. He was also a Celeste tribal member and formerly very close to the butlers, close enough to be considered like a brother to them. In exchange for immunity, Lane claimed that the butlers had told him that they and a third man killed Pierre or Ben Pelk killed Pierre. The defense spent a lot of time in the trial questioning the credibility of Lane and his wife who also was a witness. Daryl Butler said that the charges against him and his cousin were politically motivated and intended to stop their activism. The jury was not convinced by the state's largely circumstantial case, and after 30 days of what Judge Launder called, in quotes, a long, arduous, and difficult trial, and 16 hours of deliberation, they acquitted the Butlers of killing Pierre and shooting Pierre's son. The Butlers went free, and the artifacts found in Pierre's home were returned to the Confederated Tribes of Celeste's where they were reburied in as much as possible their original graves, as they could be determined. Most of this is from the Statesman Journal, by the way, out of Salem, Oregon. Pierre's family claims that he never robbed graves and never collected illegally from public land. That was their claim. Ten years later, the butlers will become persons of interest in another murder, that of the French bicyclist Alain Malassard. Malassard's murder at a campground near Toledo in Escawan in 1996 remains unsolved. And I think, Maureen, you might be talking about the documentary. Yeah, Becky yeah. and I are both, we're going to do our right. NNW. And, and this murder I've just been talking about is a kind of secondary case, but it's how I knew about it. I was having trouble 
a search of archaeology sites or grave looting and murder brought me up very little. So I thank you mm. guys for bringing this to my attention. Yeah, thank you. So now, now let's turn to Grants Pass, Oregon. In the 1980s, Grants Pass is in Southern Oregon, is kind of a crossroads into the highway that takes you into Northern California. It's in the, it's inland. It's not on the coast. Jack Lee Harrelson was an insurance agent. He had tried actually a kind of number of different things, including stonemasonry, but he ended up as an insurance agent uh, in Grants Pass. But his real avocation was his keen interest in and appreciation of Native American culture and heritage. One of my sources quotes an acquaintance of Harris's John Taft, who said, Jack's a promoter at heart, Mr. Personality, very self-assured and a good talker. Jack Harrelson spent much of his spare time pot hunting, using keep using that term, searching for Native American artifacts, he volunteered with the Oregon Archaeological Society at various times during the 1980s. I was, was a little disturbed to find he had a deep knowledge of Native American culture and a certain level of contempt for the professors, as he tended to call them, the professional archaeologists who he claimed would not find most of the important sites to study without the aid of knowledgeable man amateurs like himself. Harrelson and his then wife, Pamela, spent years digging up archaeologists would call it destroying and looting, <laughs> Native American sites in the American West. The Harrelson's favorite hunting area was in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada. This location is part of the Great Basin, a vast area of high desert and scrubland covering large swaths of eastern Oregon and Washington, Idaho, and Nevada. Archaeologists have cataloged more than 60,000 sites in Nevada alone, and they've inventoried only 3% of the state. Just like in Egypt, the arid climate actually preserves artifacts beautifully. So that's one of the reasons why that region is so rich in archaeological artifacts. And they, I'm getting some of these uh, statistics from that article, The Killing Bones, and I'm assuming they would have found and documented more sites by now. Experts deem this area to be one of the richest archaeological sites in all of the Americas. Harrelson did deal responsibly with some of his finds. In the, in the mid-80s, he had turned over the skeletons of two ancient camels and the complete skeleton of an Ice Age horse, all more than 25,000 years old, to the Museum of Nevada. Important discoveries credited to his name in the museum. And I'm hoping that the curator of the Museum of Nevada vetted it and made sure that he didn't dig these up illegally <laughs> without a permit. The most significant site that Harrelson worked was a place called Elephant Mountain Cave in the Black Rock Desert. Pat Barker, the Nevada State Archaeologist for the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, determined that Elephant Mountain would have been one of the top five archaeological sites in Nevada before Harrelson began looting it. Jack Harrelson had found the site through a tip from a local. You know, he and Pam were, you know, it was about a six-hour drive from Grants Pass, um, you know, and they would make the drive and hang out with the locals and try to get word of where there might be good sites. And someone who had a really cool arrowhead, he asked them where they got it and they told him where. And so he went there and he found this site, which he claimed when he found was just a kind of crevice in the in the rocks. It was, you know, a quite remote site, though there were some ranches nearby. Over a number of years in the 1980s, the Harrelsons drove the six-hour drive from Grants Pass to the site, usually timing their arrival for nighttime. They would cut their headlights as they drove past local ranches so they wouldn't be detected. You know, so this is all kind of showing that they acted in a way that indicates they knew what they were right. doing was wrong and illegal. They tended to stay away during the day to escape the prying eyes of BLM employees. Also, you know, the, the hot temperatures. So they would work on, with lights, you know, at night often. Over the years, the narrow crevice widened into a good-sized cavern through their excavations. They would pile the ex excavated earth kind of in front 
to conceal their activity and tried to make it look like it was kind of just a natural land formation. Ultimately, Harrelson's illegal activity is revealed to the authorities, and this is how that happens. In 1995, an Oregon State Police Trooper, Walt Markey, got a tip conveyed to him by the DA that someone had buried Native American remains in their backyard. Markey manages to figure out that it is most likely Jack Harrelson and that Jack has an ex-wife who took part in this and is likely to inform on Jack. And there's a funny quote from Marquis. He says something like, when I found out there was a disgruntled ex-wife, he said, I was really happy. Mm-hmm. He said he, he knew that would be really useful. Pam had left Jack after a number of ordeals, one of which was that apparently her young daughter from a previous marriage had told the grandmother that Jack had sexually abused her. Uh, Pam, as is often the case for reasons we don't need to get into here, didn't actually leave him until a number of years later. And that daughter died in a tragic accident a couple years later. Uh, But in any case, there was kind of no love lost between her and Jack once she left him. I want to actually quote from the text of the judgment or the the appeal Jack Harrelson actually en- ended up winning this appeal, the state versus Harrelson 1997 from the Court of Appeals of Oregon, because it gives a good explanation of what they did and what was determined legally that they had done and what they found at this elephant mountain site. The defendant is a longtime collector of Native American artifacts who has searched for and found them in many locations on public Native American and private land. In 1980, he discovered a location in Nevada that came to be known as Elephant Mountain Cave. The cave, which is on federal land, appears to have been a human habitation at several different times over a period of at least 5,000 years, and possibly much longer. When defendant discovered it, the cave was a small slit in the side of the mountain. He and his then-wife, who is now Pamela Ralph, dug for artifacts at the cave a number of times between 1980 and 1985, generally working in the winter and traveling at night in order to avoid detection. By the time they were finished, the cave was a cavern 70 feet wide and 12 feet high. They found many artifacts during their years of digging and took them home in the process destroying the archaeological context of those artifacts and almost all of the scientific value of the site. During their digging, Defendant and Ralph discovered two large baskets. One contained the body of a boy and the other contained the body of a girl. They removed the bodies and associated artifacts from the baskets, kept the artifacts in the baskets for Defendant's collection, placed the bodies in plastic garbage bags, and buried them in the Defendant's Ah. backyard. Ah. According to Ralph, the bodies were intact when buried. However, the heads were missing when they were disinterred a decade later as part of the investigation of the Defendant's activities. A witness testified that in April 1992, defendant had a human skull the size of a child in his house. Defendant's comments at the time linked it to the bodies from the Elephant Mountain Cave. There was a big trade in skulls. It started back in the 1800s with the pseudoscience of phrenology. And also just people like to collect Native American remains for all kinds of wrong reasons. You know, there's kind of morbid interest and this kind of feeling that, oh, these are people who died out and we don't really need to care. You know, we don't, we don't need to treat their remains like... We would want the remains of our loved ones to be treated. So skulls in particular, there continues to be a big trade in Native American skulls, but it's just really kind of horrible. At some point, the authorities began investigating defendants' activities. Ralph agreed in exchange for immunity from prosecution. That's that's Pamela, the ex-wife, to assist in the investigation. The climax of the investigation came in April 1995 when the state police obtained a warrant to search defendants' property. Shortly before they did so, Ralph passed along a tip from an unidentified child that defendant had two gambling machines in his house. I think it's funny that the gambling machines were initially the, the big crime. You know, mm-hmm. the Police did not think 
that tip provided probable cause to believe that the defendant was committing any crimes concerning those machines, but an officer with expertise in gambling crimes agreed to participate in the search. During the search, the police saw in plain view in a room that also contained objects described in the search warrant to apparent gambling machines. After obtaining defendant's consent to examine the machines, they determined that the slot machine was illegal and that the other machine was an illegal gray machine, which I have no idea what it is, but some sort of gambling thing. Defendant was cooperative during the search. When the officers were unable to find many of the Elephant Mountain artifacts at his home, he told them that he had taken them to another location in order to hide them from the police. He then voluntarily took an officer to that location. On April 14, 1995, shortly after the search, he was indicted for the crimes for which he was ultimately convicted. This is me now. Sorry. That's the end of that. I'm not sure if it's an affidavit, whatever. It's the legal document that describes the appeal. And I'll explain what that is once I tell you about his conviction. The Harrelsons had, in fact, unearthed thousands of valuable artifacts at the site, including sandals that eventually were dated to be 10,000 years old, radiocarbon dated. Authorities had searched and seen more than 2,000 artifacts from Harrelson's properties, not necessarily his home, but you know these other locations where he stowed stuff, including petroglyphs, scrapers, axe head, mauls, awls, mortars, and pestles, fishing lures, net sinkers, smoothing stones, abraders, obsidian blades, an antler necklace, a wooden digging stick, hundreds of arrowheads, and monos. Wow. And but two items in particular importance were not recovered. When they dug up the skeletons of the children in the backyard, the skulls were gone. Apparently, and this is a quote from The Killing Bones, Walt Markey, who was the Oregon State Trooper, asked Harrelson about the skulls. But Harrelson just shrugged. They were there when I buried them, Harrelson said. The baskets themselves, by the way, are very valuable. They're something called a burden basket, a woven hamper that ancient Native American women wore like a backpack to carry a child, sometimes other things as well. And the children were very carefully, it clearly was a very loving burial. So as they were digging, they found these baskets and they could open them up and they could see like the little skulls inside. So this is, again, another long quote from Killing Bones because it's very evocative and I think really conveys really how how criminal this was, not just legally, but morally what they did with these artifacts. So he didn't know how to open the sealed containers. So he contacted some pot honey friends, one of whom had worked at the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles. They all gathered in the Harrelson's garage. Delicately, they opened the burden basket and pulled out small funerary artifacts, a bowl, a knife, a rabbit net. Then they removed the remains of a boy. He was tiny, probably around four, with leathery, mummified skin. Ah. A desiccated young girl came out of the... uh, There was another basket that was more conically shaped. She was older, perhaps 10, her kneels put to her chest. Her long black hair was still there, said Pam. She had teeth, too. Can I just say that all these things were destroyed and what they did with these afterwards? Carbon Mm. dating later revealed that the children had been buried around 2,000 years ago. So these are very, these are really ancient remains. Pam took the basket into the bathroom and scrubbed them clean with pine saw. Oh! Um, The other pot hunters were marveled at the treasure. None of them, them, none of these friends knew where the cave was. Pam said, we never told anyone, but at least one friend warned the Harrisons against continuing the dig. He said, you ought to stay away from it. This is serious stuff. Harrelson is tried for aggravated theft, abuse of a corpse, tampering with evidence. It wasn't clear if he was charged under ARPA. And I think because this was in the 90s, and a lot of this had been done in the early 80s, apparently there was statute of limitations on the federal possible federal charges. So uh, it didn't look like he was charged under ARPA, but I think ARPA allowed for civil penalties, as we'll see those become significant. And so much, a lot of these are the under state law. During his trial, Harrelson tried to downplay the significance of the items. Harrelson's defense attorney portraying his client as a serious hobbyist, unfairly targeted by overzealous government officials. Harrelson never took the stand in his own defense, but in other statements he claimed, and later on, he claimed that he only dug a test hole 
To interest archaeologists in the site, did not remove nearly as much as the BLM claims he did. In the end, it was the judge's comments upon sentencing seeing him that seemed to really rankle Harrelson the most. Uh, the judge said, you are not an amateur archaeologist, you are a common thief. Uh, so in 1986, in this trial, Harrison was convicted of aggravated theft, abuse of a corpse, tampering with evidence. Some of his former business partners had also testified against him, as well as Pam, his ex-wife. He received a short stint in jail, a penalty of 90 days, and served 30 days. Jeez. But the fine through civil penalties could potentially amount to over a million dollars. Eventually, the abuse of corpse charge was reversed due to uh, statute of limitations the state tried to argue that because he had these things that remains in his possession, you know, up until the time of the investigation, the statute of limitations didn't apply. But ultimately, the court ruled that when he dug them up was the time factor and that that the statute of limitations had passed on that. So he was he won his appeal on that conviction. So uh, shortly after his trial, BLM officials did in fact charge Harrelson with a 2.5 million fine, the highest civil claim for an individual ever attached to an ARPA case. So there was that civil liability path they could take. Well, this is a quote, we felt the American public deserved some restitution for the destruction of the site, said Pat Barker, the BLM archaeologist in Nevada. It was Barker who came up with the 2.5 million figure, an estimate combining the archaeological value of the cave, which she estimated at $1.75 million, and the cost of restoration and repair, which was $750,000. So Jack served his short sentence and came out seemingly reformed. He starts a business called Jack's Outback, selling arrowheads and opals. There's a lot of opal mining in my part of the world, which can be quite valuable, and replicas of Indian artifacts. He seemed to think he could successfully contest the massive fine charged him by the BLM. He seemed to be pretty blasé about it. And maybe the fact that it was such an unprecedented fine, he figured, oh, they'll never be able to make it stick. Oh, by the way, because of his conviction, he lost his insurance license, so he couldn't practice oh. insurance anymore. So he's running this business. In 2002, a guy named Brian Dolan shows up in Grants Pass, something of a ne'er-do-well by all accounts, looking to make some quick cash on some arrowheads someone had given him. People around town refer him to Jack Harrelson because of his business and his expertise. And Harrelson, when looking at the arrowheads, passes on them. He says they're too chipped and damaged and not valuable. But he has suggestions on how Dolan can make some good money on Native American relics and artifacts. And he starts telling Doland about places he'd go to start digging these things up. And he actually suggested to him it would be most effective if he could bring a backhoe. Like, oh, gee. Isn't that horrible? Uh, Doland seems a little bit reluctant. He seems to maybe have a sense that maybe this isn't really quite legal or something. And, <laughs> you know, maybe he's not the most upstanding citizen, but he's not, not necessarily a real criminal. At one point, Harrelson tells Dolan that he's really, really obsessed with getting a certain kind of artifact, a crescent head, which is a, a beautifully carved stone crescent that there's a debate among archaeologists how it was used. Something is it a tool, is it a decoration? Jack believed that it was usually several of them would be affixed to a stick and it would be used as a kind of threshing kind of tool. They were highly prized. And he, he was convinced that at Elephant Mountain, you know, he would find one that would be really, really valuable. And he hadn't been back there in a while, so he said. But he and Dolan go to that site 
to dig around and see if they can find this crescent head that Jack has been kind of salivating over. And as they were there, Jack is acting really, really nervous and he's looking around and, and Dolan says, look around you, Jack, there's no one here. I mean, this is really remote. And Jack is like, yeah, you're right. He said, but he said, if a BLM guy does drive by in a in his pickup or something, he he brought some guns with him. He brought a couple of rifles. He said, he just, just, just don't even let him ask you any questions. Just shoot him right away. You know, just, <laughs> Oh, no, I think he said, take him out, take him out. And Dolan's oh, like, kill him, you know? So, <laughs> uh, so in any case, they never found the Crescent. Eventually, Dolan seems to have really won Harrelson's trust. At one point, Harrelson tells him he really has something he really wants to, to show him. And he shows up at Dolan's house and in his car and opens the truck and takes out the skull, these little skulls. And he mm-hmm. gives them to Dolan, you know, not sure why he gave them up like that. Maybe he didn't want to be found in possession of them. So in 2002, just around this time, a judgment came down where the court basically ordered that Jack would, in fact, have to pay that $2.5 million civil penalty assessed by the BLM. And this seems to push him over the edge in some way. And he suddenly starts to talk a lot about and seems to decide to kill his former business partners, the judge who sentenced him in his 1996 <sighs> trial, and the state trooper who first investigated him. So Lloyd Olds, who owned the Bonanza Opal Mine, that was kind of a, a business associate of his. Richard Ledger, Olds partner in the mine, the, both of them had testified against him at his 1996 trial. Lloyd O'Neill, who was the judge who called Harrelson a common thief, and then Markey, the Oregon State Trooper. Harrelson says to Dolan, hey, do you know someone who could, you know, would you be willing to kill these guys for me? Or would you be willing to find someone who can kill them for me? And Dolan tells him, well, I'm not going to do it. But I think I know a guy, a former biker, who I think has done this before, and I think he'd be willing to do it. And Harrelson said he wouldn't meet with the guy. Dolan would have to be the liaison. And he wasn't going to pay him with even cash or anything that could be traced. But he would pay the assassin in raw opals, which would potentially be worth $10,000. So they all kind of work it out. And Dolan says, I've got someone lined up. Three days later, Dolan shows up at Harrelson's house with a Polaroid of the body of Lloyd Olds in a shallow grave. And Jack Harrelson says to him, one down, three to go. But just within minutes, cops show up, SWAT team arrives, uh, and Jack Lee Harrelson is arrested. Uh, the old fake Polaroid. Oh, yeah. It turns out that Dolan was working undercover for the state police. He had taped all their conversations. And there was, uh, even, there was even surveillance footage of them at Elfin Cave. Uh, Dolan had told them about this expedition, and they actually set up hidden cameras at this remote site. All of the conversations where Harrelson said he won and he the crucial thing is he had actually given Dolan the opals to pay the supposed assassin so he's charged with conspiracy to commit aggravated murder attempted aggravated murder and four counts of solicitation to commit murder uh, he pled not guilty he ends up being actually tried twice he's acquitted on two of the charges in late 2004 i've had trouble getting real Details on this, and it's not really necessary. There was a second trial. In 2005, Harrelson was convicted in a retrial of trying to hire a hitman to kill Lloyd Olds of Brookings, the partner in the Opal Mind, who Harrelson blamed for his grave robbing conviction. And the key evidence, of course, were the tape recordings of conversations with Dolan and all of, you know, the, the payment of with the Opals and all of those things. Harrelson's defense attorney argued that Harrelson was the victim of entrapment by police. The hitman never existed. And the tape recordings of his murderer plans represented the musings of a lonely old man who never had any intention of going ahead with them. But a Jackson County Circuit Court jury 
deliberated for less than an hour in 2006 before finding him guilty of trying to hire a hitman to kill his former business partner, Lloyd Olds. The last I see in the documentation is Harrelson dies in the Oregon State Penitentiary in 2013, serving out his 10-year sentence. He always claimed that the only illegal thing he ever did was dig on public land without a permit. I just have a few closing thoughts. I just want to kind of put this in a little larger context. This was a really big case. I mean, trying to murder people was only part of it. I mean, (laughs) it's really huge judgment. I found in a really good Washington Post article from 2021 that is called, Will the Mass Robbing of Native American Graves Never End? Where they're talking about how in recent years, the FBI in particular has really, really ramped up investigation and prosecution of these cases. And in this article, they talk about a really massive case where a man named Don Miller, 90 years old, a resident of Indiana and a lifelong avid pot hunter. The FBI investigated him, came to his house with a warrant, and they, in his house, after six days of actually going through the house and inventorying it, they uncovered more than 2,000 bones representing 500 human beings. Most of the bones forensic anthropologists determined were belonged to Native Americans. And many things from around, he had actually had stuff from around the world that he had bought from shady dealers and all kinds of things. Deborah Nichols, the president of the Society for American Archaeology, says Don Miller is not unique. He was just able to do it on a larger scale than most human. And he was doing it all his life when he was 90 years old. This is a quote from the article. Um, to kind of put it in perspective from a more recent article, Federal Land Management Agency estimate that more than one-third of Native American sites on federally protected property have been emptied. Many of those sites were graves. To take just one example of the scope of the theft, according to a 1997 FBI law enforcement bulletin, 95% of Native American graves on public land in Southwest Virginia have been pillaged. Um, And this doesn't even begin to account for graves on private property. In some cases, the plunder happened years ago at the hands of professional archaeologists, scientists, and museums. Nearly 200,000 human remains were found to be housed in federally funded museums and institutions in the United States, Mm. according to one governmental inventory. But we haven't yet accounted for what has been taken by pot hunters and held in private collections. And so zealous hobbyists continue to look to cash in on the global demand for Native American goods. And that's the big thing is... Without the demand for these goods and the willingness for people to buy stuff that does not have proper provenience and almost certainly came from a shady means, there wouldn't be this this activity going on. This is a really kind of sad thing. The theft is so pervasive that there's an active debate about whether to mark Native American burials on public and tribal lands. Officials who police these areas worry that such markers act as an X and a proverbial treasure map. So it's really hard. In fact, if you volunteer as a site steward with National Forest Service or whatever, one of the things you have to pledge to is keep your site secret. And there's a lot of, again, I mentioned it before, the history of colonialism, kind of attitudes towards Native Americans and other indigenous cultures. We we have the right to just plunder their goods and their remains and everything. Uh, One of the common defenses used by pot hunters even today is that these native sites have been abandoned and that digging at these sites, they're not stealing anything, but rather saving evidence of the ancient past. And of course, this ignores the fact that many of these lands were taken away from native peoples in the first place. It ignores too the way many tribes moved seasonally to conserve resources. And so sites weren't literally really abandoned. And also their own beliefs about the burial process and, and the sacredness of these remains. One a Native American in this article, Mike Ketch's enemy, says, once a body is done and the spirit goes back to the spirit world, the remains of that person and anything associated with them is meant to be left alone in the earth. You want to allow the earth to absorb her again and it becomes part of the cyclical system. This dilemma still 
continues and it's a really a global problem. There was a survey done in the Journal of Contemporary Criminal Evidence that says that findings from recent worldwide study of archaeological site looting, which largely fuels the international trade in illicitly obtained antiquities, found that according to the opinions and personal experiences of over 2,000 archaeologists who were surveyed, working in 118 countries, say that the archaeologists report there is a distinct connection between site looting and the production of and trade of methamphetamine in the United States and drugs in other places like Mexico. American archaeologists report run-ins with meth heads on their sites with increasing frequency. Other archaeologists working throughout the world report violent encounters with looters on site, some of whom even report being shot at and assaulted by looters. Overall findings suggest that archaeological fieldwork has become an increasingly dangerous occupation around the world. And in a 2020 Interpol survey, based on data from more than 70 countries found that global law enforcement has seized more than 850,000 ancient objects in that year alone, everything from rare coins, paintings, sculptures, to archaeological pieces. They also estimated that illegal trafficking of cultural, what they call cultural property, may total up to $10 billion every year, a figure that Interpol says has risen over the past decade. Cultural property trafficking represents the third largest international criminal activity, surpassed only by drugs and arms dealing. Wow. Uh, wow. And here in Oregon, tribes have really combined forces and tr are trying to work proactively with the FBI. BLM, National Forest Service, and these other agencies to combat looting and theft. But enforcement is difficult. You consider many of these sites are remote and unguarded most of the time. Punishments still seem pretty meager, even though the laws have really been beefed up since the 70s. When you consider the money to be made, I saw one big case of looting that had been successfully prosecuted in 2010 in Washington state that resulted in a fine of a little more than $6,000. And that was considered a pretty hefty fine. But when you consider the money that can be made from these artifacts, I mean, it's, it's peanuts, right? You know, so... Ultimately, until collectors refuse to buy yeah. suspicious artifacts, the practice will continue. So it really, collectors, whether they be museums or whether they just be private people interested in this stuff, just have to stop doing that. The theft and buying of illegally obtained artifacts, especially human remains, is a crime in and of itself. It does terrible damage to our historic patrimony. When murder and attempted murder go along with it, it just demonstrates how high the stakes really are. And it's kind of an irony that our country has spent 400 years destroying the culture of these people, and yet these tokens, these artifacts are considered collectors. I know. Collectors want, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll destroy your culture, but we'll pay money for your culture. And these and, pop and, hunters right. who claim to be such revere Native American culture so much, but they are in fact destroying. There's, and also that's bullshit. Look at what Harrelson did with with the kids. He want, He was looking for a payday. You know, there are families, they've been doing it for generations when you read articles about them and they're proud of it and feel like you know, these so-called archaeologists and professors have done it. So I don't see the difference. They don't see a difference right. a lot of times. Yeah, there has to be but accountability across the board. You know, There really it, is. You know. Like I was trying to tell that to Jewel when we went to the museum in Boston, there was like a sarcophagus or something there. And she said, is there a body in there? And I said, yeah. She said, how is that right? And I said, it's yeah. really not. But at the same time, it's really fascinating to right. see. I but I, I wanted to say, too, that 
now that we're supposedly more enlightened, museums also, if they're obtaining artifacts and stuff, they need to do their due diligence and find out where it came from. It's just like with stolen art and stuff. They can't just be like, oh, this is a great find. They have gotten better about that. But still, I can understand you have these treasures in your collection that most of the people come, like the British Museum. Yes. Right. And I do think, too, they downplay what they've done. And we're going to do the NNW on the old growth documentary in that Pierce murder is a small part of that documentary but his daughter she said oh it was just collecting arrowheads from the ground they found artifact she was young when he was killed and I but I do think that people rationalize that what they're doing isn't that bad and because he respected the natives in fact they didn't pursue it farther because she said dad wouldn't have wanted us to he respected them but the other guys like harrelson he obviously didn't respect them he was just making a buck also he was keeping things for his own collection this doesn't make any better he wanted things for himself and that's just as greedy and just as disrespectful because they don't belong to you and whatever it is about them that makes you feel good to have them it's really wrong thinking, yeah. you know. And now there's an incredibly valuable site he just destroyed, you know. Right, and, yeah. And although they can carbon date some of the things they found there and everything, and it's not the same as finding it in context. It's so important. The OAS, you know, sometimes they, some of the talks are really very technical. The archaeologists will get into, and you know, when we did a, a trench in this and we did this, you know, the stratification was this and, mm. and it's, you know, precisely measuring the stratification to determine like that's part of what helps to corroborate the dating. It's, you can't, you know, just radiocarbon something, but if it's found in strata that makes sense for the earlier dating, you, you know, it's all this stuff that's mm-hmm. very, very important. And like the meaning of these things is so much determined by that context and, you know, taking uh, whether it's shovels or backhoes or whatever, and just digging things out. It's just the worst. Just one last thing I'll say is the way archaeology is done now is in fact, is they deliberately do not excavate an entire site. They do what they call like test pits. Like he said he did, but he didn't. And they actually are careful to leave a lot of the site intact in years to come. They'll better technology. They'll be able to understand more. You know, archaeologists will tell you that excavation is in fact a kind of, process of destruction and that's why you have to document it so carefully and then you want to make sure there's enough for like later archaeologists who are going to have much better tools you know you don't want to destroy it but at the same time if you never dug it up at all you're not going to know that's the give and take it's the given yeah we need to understand we need to excavate but there's a proper way to do it so that we really gain an understanding from what we're what we're doing so right that was very interesting. I, I thought it was that was a little more kind of change of pace. Connected with that, we can segue right into our NNW. <laughs> All right, so we're doing our NNW on a documentary called Old Growth Murder that was on Prime. Yes. And the credits were not very telling. I think it is a Canadian documentary. And it was a little bare bones. Yeah. As Liz mentioned earlier, it's about a young man from France, Alain Malassard. He had this lifelong dream of bicycling across North America, going across Canada from east to west, then down into the northwest, down to California, and then back up across and ending the up. southern and tier, my- kind of. Well, then then going up, he was going across the Midwest. I'm like, God, he was going to be hot. And then ending up in Montreal. And he got as far as the Oregon coast. 
and was murdered. And that's Aww. what this documentary is about. And so I think we can get right into it. So number one, reenactments. I didn't take any points off. There were some just very minor general ones that were not, I didn't feel they were intrusive or anything. What about you, Becky? I took half a point off. Okay. Just because I didn't think they were necessary and yeah. I'm against them in general. Yeah, I am too. I don't think they add anything. So. Okay, what's, what's the next category? I don't have my category. Narrative list. cliches. I took half a point off. You don't have to show a silhouette of an axe murderer against a tent when somebody says the word axe murderer. <laughs> it's just pointless. There's enough. Yeah, and that's one of the things that bugs me. A lot of documentaries now, the kind of frenetic, and this was not a frenetic one, but like somebody will say something and then they have to show something from an old yeah. movie or whatever. And you don't yeah. need it. That bugged me. So I'm taking half a point off. Okay. I didn't take any off for that. The next one is racial gender obtuseness. I took off half a point the racial obtuseness against the native people by some of the cops. I hate it when the cops are like, well, they're clannish. They don't want to talk to us. They stick to themselves. The reason they don't want to talk to you, asshole, is because they can easily get themselves nailed for something they didn't do. You abuse them. You discriminate against them. And they've learned that nothing ever good comes from talking to a cop. And the cops to a person in this were white. There was one that they just had two sentences from, uh, and it was about the Pierce thing who I believe just from the way he talked, just from his accent, that he may have been native. But other than that, all the cops were these white guys, some more sympathetic than others, but they were dealing with these native men and they obviously, there was a lot they weren't getting. As always, that's the fault of the people, not necessarily the documentarian. But, you know, there was a subtext to the natives being unfairly treated by the cops but I felt like that they kind of just let it go when the cops are like, well, they they don't want to talk to us, blah, blah, blah. And they could have done that in a way that was, I think in, in general, it was sympathetic in a lot of ways towards the natives. It could have been more so. Okay. So I'm taking away half a point. I didn't take anything off. Lack of good visuals. I didn't take anything off. Again, it was a low budget film, but... First of all, they had the great fortune that Elaine stayed with some families in Canada who were related to each other, who were very nice and friendly to him. One family took video of him with their little, at the time, two-year-old daughter. And they also used crime scene photos. They had nice maps and timelines. There was a lot of video from when the Butler brothers were arrested type of thing. And so they had a lot of good visuals and I think they used them well. Yeah, I thought the same thing. It was nice that the families, even though it was so long ago, they had video of him interacting with the little girl that was really nice yeah. and and just of him riding off on his bike and stuff like that. Yeah, bon chance, they said to him as he rode off Aww. to his death. Especially at the end, the ending sequence, and I'm putting this under visuals, even though it could also be part of storytelling. When his parents came to visit a few years after he was murdered, they brought a rhododendron that sadly died to plant where he was killed. And they interspersed the video that somebody had taken of that with photos and videos of him from throughout his life. 
and it was yeah. done very very well and it was very effective and it very sad but it wasn't like this cloying overdone no, not, thing no. they weren't squeamish about the crime scene photos we saw his poor legs sticking out of that uh, tent the production was simple refreshingly so i would say uh, missing pieces there were some things that bothered me. In fact, I'm going to take away a point, actually. Um, first of all, just some small things that bother me. For instance, his camera was found with the stuff. I'm like, did they develop the film? Yeah. Because as a mystery writer, that would have been a clue. But just as an investigator, I'd want to see what the last things he was taking pictures of were. Yes. And if they did develop the film, they never said. It may not have occurred to them because some of these cops were just dumb as a box of hammers. Yeah, they were. There were also bigger things like, Liz, the reason I mentioned the hypnosis earlier, they just kind of glossed over that. But the problem with hypnosis is people it can is easily remember ideas that have been put into their head yes. or they had film of the hypnosis sessions. But then when it came to the trial, it was like, oh, they just, yeah, they, they didn't like the hypnosis. And they had it from this cop's point of view. And as cops always do, he dismissed the legal argument <laughs> whatever and they didn't yeah. even say what the legal argument was they they really did not make it clear and maybe the people making this film didn't even know that just because the 19 year old kid and the girlfriend of peers were saying these things under hypnosis that doesn't mean that these things actually happened or they're their actual memories and that's why their testimony under hypnosis didn't count in court and i think that should have made it more clear and that really yes. bothered me can i just say something real quick that people yeah. are getting who's listening to this and i'm gonna try not to reveal too much the murder trial donald peer happened before the murder of malisard and the yeah. butlers you know there's some there's... sort of connection between the butlers and malisard that that's why they talk about this earlier right trial. they were right they were suspects in malisard's yeah yes. they, were, they were persons of interest at, at the very least R right and and that's another thing i want to say about missing pieces and i'm and i don't want to spoil things obviously but there did seem to be some confirmation bias on the part of the police yeah. But the filmmakers, they hinted at it, and I'll talk a little bit more about yes. storytelling, but they didn't make enough of a point yes. about that. And Becky, how about yes, you? Yes, I, I took a point off for that, too. I thought that they should have gone into that more, just more detail. I don't know. I felt like there was stuff, I had a lot of questions about that for the same reasons that you did. I think they could have told us a little more information. Maybe they didn't know. The problem is it was a long time ago. It was poorly investigated. investigated. It's really hard to find information. What's the next category? Inaccuracies and acronyms. No, I'm not. I had thought of putting the hypnosis thing under this, but I put it under missing pieces instead. So I'm not taking any. I didn't have anything because it wasn't a dramatization. So. Right. Storytelling. I could take away points, but I'm not. The thing that impressed me the most about the storytelling is lots of times when you have police as the major talking heads in a documentary, all you get is copaganda. And this documentary did not shy away of showing how stupid the cops were in <laughs> yeah. some cases that did have a narrator and the narrator would say and yet lieutenant blah 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 never did blah 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 and yet he waited 14 months before he went to see this blah 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 so i give them a lot of credit because most of these docs slobber all over the cops and never 
questioned their actions. And this investigation was just mishandled from the beginning. It's almost like nobody really gave a shit. Yeah, they didn't. They still don't. I don't want to excuse them, but this is a part of the rural coast of Oregon where there's very, very few murders. So these, these cops were very... I think the state police did come in at some point, I believe. Yeah, well, one of them, one of the initial investigators was a state Yeah, but the initial cops on the scene, yeah, the local. Well, then they handed it off like there was politics going on in the state police. And so the first one, the guy who should have investigated it was on vacation. Yes. They brought a guy down from Astoria and he investigated it for a week. And then they brought another guy in and blah, blah, blah. So there was no continuity, but just things. And I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. They really dropped the ball on informing this poor guy's parents in yes. France. That was horrible. They find out about it because they get a care package from this church in Canada. And it's like, how fucking hard is it? Were they shy about it because the parents didn't speak English? So, oh, I don't want to call up somebody and have to try to speak French. How hard is it to find somebody who speaks fucking French in Oregon? The woman of the family from Canada. <laughs> yeah. Yes, she offered. Right. So in Oregon, and she said, "If you need tr- need to have someone to to speak to them right. in French, I will do it." Right. And, and they said no they blow right, it because they're very territorial. And this is not a thing that oh, they're rural cops who don't deal with murder. This is I, I don't give a shit who you are. Make sure the parents yeah, know. know. And also, as an yeah. investigative point the parents actually had helpful information and actually mailed them stuff and everything that if they had known about earlier they probably still wouldn't have done anything because they were stupid but how do you not say i want to call the parents and find out if he was in contact with them and if he said anything about his last days so i so i thought the storytelling was good because it did point out things about the cops I i had some small quibbles with the storytelling but i think it tried harder than a lot of much flashier documentaries to show a poor investigation and confirmation bias and things were the major flaws of an investigation that is and i don't think it's a spoiler to say um for a murder that is still unsolved yeah i realize as you're talking about i forgot i didn't even think about this that this could very well fit into that theme i had of of campground murders in Oregon. It could have. The episode where I did the Crowther family and the, yes. the attack so of the, the two bicyclists. Becky, what about you? Storytelling. I thought they did a good job. Like we've mentioned a couple times, even though it was, it was, I don't want to say basic, but it was, you know, it the was basic. straightforward. Um, they didn't have a lot of flashy video and they didn't try to make up for that. Like you mentioned before, like a, some of them will show old movie clips or stuff that's kind of irrelevant and it's just filler and just annoys me when people do it. So I wish they wouldn't do that. They were showing footage of the scenery, photographs of the crime scene, the photographs of the people. I thought the storytelling was good. It was fairly linear. They did talk to a lot of people. It seemed like every, almost every person that came in contact with them, they were able to talk to, like the teacher that saw him right before that told him where to go camping, stuff like that. And so, and everybody seemed to be pretty forthcoming, even the dumb cop. Yeah. Canadians. Uh, Yeah. They were very nice. So I don't take anything off for storytelling. The next one's freshness. 
I think it was fresh. I was not aware. I mean, there's been a lot of murders. This was 1987, I mm-hmm. think. So, you know, a lot of, even at the time, like the Oregonian had like three paragraphs on it. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I think it is fresh because it's a different kind of murder than what we see in our usual run-of-the-mill true crime documentaries. I felt like even the bare-bonesness of the documentary itself was kind of fresh in a way. Yes. It's funny to say this about a murder documentary, but it was more relaxing to watch something where they didn't feel they had to have 15 different reporters. Every talking head they had was somebody who was involved. Well, someone relevant. Like and, this, the and the reporter, yeah. they did have like that E.A. Schwartz. It's funny. I thought it was funny when he said when they, the butlers were acquitted in the Pierce murder, he says, I think we were all relieved by that or whatever. Even the reporter, he and I think there was another reporter too, were people who had covered it. They're not just like a lot of documentaries have somebody who who doesn't know the story really any better than we do i can't um, stand that so i thought yeah i thought it was fresh what how about you becky yes exactly i had never heard of it which is nice and, and it's like i said in my last episodes i've done almost any murder or, or crime is interesting if someone tells you the story, the story it's yeah. an interesting story because you don't you really don't know what happened yeah, and yeah, if I mean, someone it's... just shot him or something okay you know those fern gatherers or whoever didn't want him around or something somebody was doing something nefarious but he was he was brutally killed it wasn't yes. just him being and, shot and or then stabbed. the evidence that somebody came back after his body was found and they went to get help that somebody came back and kind of ransacked probably looking for anything worth money or something ransacked his tent site and stuff but the fact that cops didn't talk to most of the people who saw the scene or stuff like that the fact that it's unsolved if you listen to a lot of podcasts and watch stuff there's some crimes that are unsolved everybody covers everyone talks about and this one was just as interesting as any of those and it's just mysterious and i've never heard of it you know there's i'm sure there's lots and lots and lots and lots of murders we we've never heard of but part of the thing that made this interesting but also i think made it less interesting at the time is because he was from france yes he was a stranger the next one's repetition yeah i'm not taking any they did show things but it was for effect and i think they it wasn't annoying they showed a lot of pictures over and over but it was the type of thing that they're reminding you of who people are the repetition category i'm reminded of why we have when i watch like rarely 48 hours or something well dateline isn't as bad but like the first half hour it seems like they're just saying the same sentence over yes. and over and over yeah. again. And it's like, where is this? So, but no, no points off for repetition. And beating the drum, uh, no points no. off. No points off. They didn't beat the drum. I think it was a very... They could have. They could have. It was even-handed. They did make the point a couple times that he was nervous about going to the U.S. But again, that was part of the storyline. So and I sad. guess <laughs> his nervousness was... Well founded. I have nine points, so I have I, eight. that was really good. Maybe some people who need the flashy stuff might feel it's too bare bones for them, but I had no issue with the. I would um, recommend it. It was good, but it was it was sad. Thing with the storytelling too, um, I didn't take points away, but even though I watched it twice, I found all the butlers confusing yes and i feel like so did the police when well no but i feel like when they went into the backstory about aim and the thing in gun crimes in canada and the pierce thing 
if they maybe told it a little bit different way, it would have. That's what not, I was trying to get at with my missing pieces. Right. Yeah. It would have not. It would not only not have been as confusing, but would have better made the point that they were ultimately trying to make that the guy that the cops focused on was confirmation bias and because they had it out for this guy and it kept them from doing their jobs and focusing on the other people. And while that was kind of clear as you got towards the end, I think yeah. if they had been told that whole middle part in a, in a way that was easier to understand, you know, it was hard because you got like five guys named Butler. I want to rewatch it because I actually want to think, because I was thinking about how that it's possible that whoever came back after he was, after the site was found and the person went off and it seems like his, because his memory is very different of what the crime scene right. photos show yes is that someone it could very well be that what that someone did like ransack and steal it had nothing to do with his murder and yeah. people do have like remember things that are the way they didn't but this guy he said the clothes he noticed that the clothes were very neatly folded yes and there wasn't this other big hole yes. in the tent and he said yeah. if it had been like there this, were really pretty specific things right he said he, if yeah. it had been like this it would have made a big impression but it could have easily like you were saying Liz, somebody came upon right. it and, and they were like oh that guy's dead up yeah i gotta buy some meth or you never know who's living in the woods but it really bugged me i know it's a minor thing it just really bugged me that they didn't mention whether the cops got the film developed i know I, I thought that and too. if the cops didn't develop the film shame on fucking them because for all we know elaine took pictures of these guys at the campsite hell they're my new friends and all this you know mm, and yeah i think it, it was sad though that he was nervous about coming yeah and i told myself well he could have gotten killed in canada too but he didn't he got killed but and the here. thing is it's not like people who are not from the like i had a friend from australia she used to say i'd come visit the United States, but I'm afraid I'm going to get shot. And I'm like, well, mm. people envision when they envision violence, it's like I'm walking down the street in a city and I get shot. It's not, oh, I'm going to be at this campground. And right. that's like something that would have happened. It's funny. Me. I saw a British guy on TV in some gun control thing. He lives in America now. And he said, you know, when I lived in England, I always had the fear, oh, I'm going to get beat up. And I never had the fear I'm going to get shot. Here in America, I never have the fear I'm going to get beat up. <laughs> but I do have the fear I'm going to get shot. And it's funny, Liz, because like in Dublin, like our first day there, we saw at least like four guys whose faces were beaten. And <laughs> yeah, it looked like, like they'd been punched in. Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, like I've never seen anything like that in the United States. No. But Liz, thank you. That was very interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you, know, you liked it. And, you know, it's like every episode doesn't have to be some woman who's killed by an asshole. Yeah, you know, and my next time is different. Thank you for having me. Thank well, you. thanks. As always, you know, with the Zoom, we don't have to wait till you come Zoom. to Maine. You know? Thanks to COVID, we're all good at Zoom. You can cut me out. Yeah, I'll cut that out.